Hi there, thank you for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where a couple of old friends get together and watch an episode of the Generation 1 Transformers cartoon series in story order and then convene to talk about what they saw, talking about it from the perspective of people who engaged with this as children and never fell out of love with it and continue to love the show into our adult years and discuss it from both ends of that perspective. My name is Jersey Droz. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist, and the other host is named... Hoover. <laughs> Not Six Cities Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> I guess those of you who really want me to pattern my name after something in the episode Hoover isn't that different from Burger. Oh, I guess. Oh, I see. I thought you was going to be Hoove Lunch. <laughs> Spoilers. Oh, we will talk about that in depth. <laughs> We're going to spend a lot of time on that one. Oh, man. Okay. And actually, I have a funny story about that, but um, we'll wait till we get to it. So, yeah, the the premise of the series is that we just watch an episode of the show, and then we talk about it in what episode are we talking about this week? Megatron's Master Plan Part 2 by Donald F. Glute. Now, could you remind me, who is Donald F. Glute? Well, we have seen that name numerous times, probably more times than any other name in this series so far. He wrote Divide and Conquer, he wrote SOS Dinobots, he wrote War of the Dinobots, he wrote Heavy Metal War, he wrote Autobot Spike, he wrote The Autobot Run, he wrote Dinobot Island 1 and 2, and he wrote Part 1 of Megatron's Master Plan, and here we are. And if you are looking for this one on Tubi, it is Season 2, Episode 16. Ah, so there you go, everybody. This is your last chance. You can hit pause right now. Go watch it. It's like 20 minutes long. And you can come back and listen to our dissection and commentary and observations about this episode. It's a good one. It's worth your time. Those of you who enjoy Hoover's perspective on the show, I think you'll enjoy this one, too. Because, man, sure seems like the Autobots don't do very much. Mm Because, hey, guess what? Victor Crowley's going to tell us what happened to them last time. And it ain't good. It's just like... Do you like to watch jets ram into things? <laughs> Do you like to watch Decepticon? Do you like to watch all of the Decepticon jets just wreck up the place? <laughs> this is the episode for you. Oh my gosh. Okay, time for the IMDb read. With the Autobots destroyed by the sun. What? Spoiler alert. <laughs> destroyed by the sun? Like the sun came and got him. <laughs> hey, Prime's a nice day. Oh my gosh, it's the sun. <laughs> it's after me. Should have put on some suntan lotion. (laughs) All right. With the Autobots destroyed by the sun, the Decepticons claim Earth for their own and make the humans into their slaves. Wow. This one just got HBO very fast. (laughs) This must be the last episode of the series. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, man. It was nice doing a show with you, Hoof. (laughs) So, wait a minute. Did they die? Victor Caroli, help us. (laughs) With the help of the wealthy Sean Berger, Megatron tries to prove the Autobots are evil, but Spike discovers the tape is a Decepticon trick. However, before he can reveal the truth, the Autobots are found guilty and banished from Earth. Megatron reprograms Teletran 1, sending the Autobots on a one-way journey into the sun. Ah, so rest in peace, Autobots. We'll miss you. Especially Jersey. I can't even talk. (laughs) 
Well, we open on a parade, and what is this parade honoring? Why, Decepticon Day, of course. We see flags and even a blimp with a Decepticon <laughs> logo. As the Decepticons march behind a marching band, and Berger stands in a car addressing the crowd. As he announces today is Decepticon Day, crowds cheer and children call out, Yay! <laughs> and one of the kids is even in a Megatron costume. That was young me. And this ain't no Ben Cooper costume, no. like where it's like he's wearing a smock with a drawing of Megatron that says Megatron. Nope. I, this kid's got a full body Megatron suit, mm-hmm. like like what you'd see at like a modern cosplay event. <laughs> it's for real, and yeah, seeing a little child cheerfully screaming Megatron. This is surreal, man. This mm-hmm. is really messed up. But well, we also see Sparkplug and Chip are here in the crowd, but they're not cheering. Sparkplug says it makes him sick. In a hurry to blow their cover and remain true to form, Starscream has some issues with Megatron's approach. Why waste time? Let's take the city now! I have my reasons, which are far beyond your meager understanding. So we're off to a great start, not even two minutes in, and Starscream already has issues with Megatron's plan. I'm marking my bingo card off now. <laughs> I also like I like that Megatron isn't playing his hand yet. He's like, well, you wouldn't even understand why I'm doing this. And mm-hmm. we're going to find out Megatron has a very good reason to not let everybody know the truth yet. But I like the idea that there's this space in the episode where we can assume maybe Megatron likes being cheered. Maybe like mm-hmm. if we went inside of his messed up underworld body, you would see like this heart just beating a little bit bigger. It's like, wow, I wish the Decepticons would cheer for me like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this guy next to me. He's always calling me out, always questioning me. And then look at that little boy over there. He loves me. Wow. <laughs> Sadly, we don't get to explore that in this episode. <laughs> well, Sparkplug and Chip just can't believe that the public just accepted this fake news. Chip reiterates that Spike's hunting down proof of the Autobots' innocence. And speaking of Spike, we cut to him, and presumably this is a flashback to when he found the tape a day or so before, because I doubt he and Ravage have been having this stare-down for 24 hours. (laughs) I do like this. They're doing the G.I. Joe thing. Like G.I. Joe is like really, really busted on this one. Transformers doesn't do it nearly as much, but like they'll have like Duke in the Sky Striker about to crash into the USS flag. And like they go to commercial just before the nose cone touches the surface of the <laughs> of the you know the boat. And then we come back from commercial and he's like, you know, six thousand feet higher. <laughs> it's like way before the crisis even began, you know. And like the old serials do this too. Like when you watch like the Crimson Ghost and those, you know, the the Rocket Men series, they do the exact same thing. But yeah, it's like the in the time since Spike left Chip and Sparkplug, which was at the trial of the Autobots, right. they've had time to put together a parade. So we must have gone back in time, unless. Spike and Ravage decided, okay, there's only one way to solve this problem. That's with a staring contest. Right. (laughs) And Ravage (laughs) is like, well, I don't blink, so obviously I'm going to (laughs) win. Three fancy feasts says you can't. Oh, really? (laughs) 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 But Ravage leaps at Spike, Spike ducks, and Ravage crashes into the monitor and is electrocuted. But it's not enough to stop him. Spike scrambles for a chair to use as a weapon against him, but it does little good. So Spike manages to push a shelving unit of videos over on top of him, distracting Ravage just long enough for Spike to get away. 
Yeah, and and when Ravage gets out from under the videotapes, he's like looking around like, where did he go? I'm like, Ravage, <laughs> Ravage, you have a lot of sensors, you know? Like, I read, I read your file card. You can smell things really good. And Spike only left you there a few seconds ago. So <laughs> I think Ravage is throwing the fight. <laughs> he probably got bored after being there for 24 hours. He's like, oh, I'm just going to let him get away. <laughs> The kid earned it. Got to tip your cap. <laughs> so, okay. So we're already in exciting chasing action adventure stuff, right? So what happens next? Well, here we go. Get ready for some of the greatest scenes in Transformers history as voted on by me and me only. <laughs> we cut to a teen dance. That's right. What? A teen dance being held at a local gymnasium. We see kids dancing to some jazzy, disco-y music. And Jersey! What? Jersey! What? Who else is dancing? Ask me who else is dancing. Who else is dancing? Rumble! Rumble is dancing with the teens. Hey, get down, Soundwave! And as we pan across the room, we see Soundwave kneeling on one knee as teen girls dance around him. Uh, okay. This scene is super weird. I loved this scene as a child. I really did. I love seeing the Decepticons in like domestic kinds of environments, right? I, I knew what a what a dance was. I saw Footloose, you know, so I knew what was happening there. It's like they don't go to dances when you're eleven, right? At least I didn't. Um It's but, a teen dance. You don't go when you're eleven, you go when you're thirteen. That's right, that's right. Dirty Dancing hadn't come out yet. But, like, these girls are, like, dancing around Soundwave, and they're, like, looking up at him almost hopefully, you know? It's like, oh, hey, Soundwave, you're very alluring. <laughs> and and it's like, as I'm watching it now as a grown-up, I'm like, is this Mr. Glute's indictment on the wisdom of the crowds? Like, does he think, like, so little of people, right? Like, like he's he's this is all making Megatron's case about, like, Optimus in the last episode was like, the people will never buy this nonsense. And Megatron's like, people are so dumb that all I gotta do is show him a picture of Optimus with a like, handwritten note next to it that says, I hate people. And they'll be like, he hates people! <laughs> and, then, and then, like, after... I don't know, a couple years of being on Earth and making things rough for everybody. If I just say on TV, hey, I'm actually nice, not only will people believe it, but girls will dance, hopefully, around the weirdest Decepticon, <laughs> mind you. It's not like they're dancing around Rumble. They're not dancing around Skywarp. That would make sense to me, at least a little bit. You know, but like, no, hey, you know that guy who carries all those people inside of his chest and talks really weird and you can't tell what his facial expression is? Oh, well, I take it back. I just talked myself into it. He's the Boba Fett. They're after that. <laughs> Never mind. But, but I do so want to. Un- <laughs> I want to underline this because, like, that seems to be one of the themes of this episode. Is like how public opinion is this fragile and tenuous thing, and maybe we shouldn't monkey with it. <laughs> so, okay, girls dance around Soundwave and looking up, hopefully, and then it, does it get weirder, Hoover? I bet it gets weirder. <laughs> Well, Ravage is even here sitting and watching inquisitively as a teen girl bops nearby. <laughs> what? And Laserbeak does as well. Only Laserbeak's emotion may not be inquisitiveness. Uh, Laserbeak want a cracker? We see this teen guy literally offer Laserbeak a cracker, and we see Laserbeak's eyes start to glow as we quickly cut away. 
and he didn't look very pleased. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you do know I'm employee of the month at Decepticon headquarters. <laughs> ask me why I'm employee of the month. Go ahead, ask me because I murder everybody. <laughs> Don't offer me a cracker, kid. But he can't say that one because he can't speak human speak, and two because they're trying to keep their you know agenda on the DL, but. This is weird, Hoover, so don't tell me that there's even more of this coming. (laughs) Well, here, dear listeners, is where I do something I don't often do. There are a lot of sites out there in Internet land who gather better information than we do. Ours is not a research-heavy podcast. It is an opinion and analysis-heavy podcast. But one fan out there who really knows his stuff is Chris McFeely. Not only does he have a fantastic YouTube channel explaining the basics on all things Transformers, but a few years back he was doing a blog covering little-known facts about every G1 episode. It was fantastic. I loved it. I soaked up all the info in it and promptly forgot most of it because my (laughs) memory sucks. But the important part is, in his coverage of this episode, he unearthed the fact that we were supposed to get other scenes of all the Decepticons playing nice with humans. It will be linked in the show notes, but guys, let me tell you what we missed out on. Quote Chris McFeely. The famous scene of Soundwave and his cassettes attending a disco in this episode was originally intended to be part of a larger montage of the Decepticons indulging in their newfound celebrity. First, Starscream goes on a late-night talk show where he is asked by the Johnny Carson-style host if he has any plans to make it big in Hollywood. I've already made a film, Starscream responds evasively. That's where I got the star in Starscream. Oh my gosh. The host jokingly wonders when the people of Earth will get to see where the scream comes from, causing Starscream to mutter under his breath very soon. Okay, that's pretty good. (laughs) In the same sequence, Thrust, Dirge, and Ramjet are the special guests at an opening ceremony where they sign autographs for an eager crowd. Dirge advises the throng of humans not to push and shove. It will only cause you pain and discomfort. (laughs) While the boastful thrust revels in the attention. But Ramjet has his misgivings. If you ask me, he grumbles, autograph sounds too much like Autobot. Okay, that's not bad. Animation models for a poster advertising the Conehead's appearance and an 8x10 glossy style photo of Dirge were created for this scene before it was deleted from the episode. Man. <laughs> I love that. This is, this is who we're thinking about, the alternate reality that never was mm. and what it could have been if only. And on his blog, Chris McFeely shows the preliminary sketches that were done. We see an 8x10 style photo of Dirge, and we see a poster advertising a promotional appearance at the opening of a mall or something, showing Dirge, Ramjet, and Thrust as special guests. When I originally read this entry and saw this sketch, my head exploded. (laughs) I wanted a six-part miniseries of all this, just scene after scene after scene of the Decepticons doing goofy public relations appearances. You give me six episodes of that, and I'll probably (laughs) still want more. So, Jersey. Yes. What did I have you do for my birthday a few years ago? 
You sent me a high-res scan of that poster and asked me to finish it, finish the drawing. <laughs> and so I went ahead and inked it and colored it and sent it back to you as a poster-sized image. And it should describe the image because it's not just them standing there in like model sheet pose. It's like they're all like jumping fireworks style where they're all going in different directions. And it's like, today only, Thruster and Ramjet. <laughs> and they're smiling like, hey, come on, kids, come and meet us at the fair. <laughs> it yes. is the silliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so not only did I have Jersey make the sketch into a full color piece of art, but I had it printed up as a poster and it's framed on my wall behind me right now. <laughs> I may never get to see the scene of Dirge, Ramjet, and Thrust at the grand opening of a mall, but every time I walk into my library, I feel like I'm living that day. <laughs> so sadly, oh. we missed out on absolute greatness, but thanks to Chris McFeely's blog and Jersey's art, it lives on. <laughs> should, should we release that on the 4 million years later Facebook? Yes, I will definitely take okay. a photo of that. Okay. <laughs> Now, I think we were talking about the episode, weren't we? Yeah. I, I, I seem to remember us talking about Transformers episodes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as we cut away from the teen dance, we find out that the Autobots aren't dead after all. What? They're still flying through space and... Oh, brother. They're up to their old new character-introducing tricks. Hey, we going anywhere, Cosmos? Or is this a tour of the stars? And we see Berger's ship of Autobots flying through space, but something is leading it. Something small, green, yellow, and red. Put a pin in that, but right now we have to talk about the Autobots arguing. Hound tells Ironhide to knock it off. It wasn't Cosmos who got them in this mess. And then we get this shocking exchange. You're right. Maybe we ought to take it out on the one who got us into this mess. I did what was necessary. Wait, so Ironhide wants to take it out on Prime? Ironhide, one of Prime's loyalist friends and soldiers? This is near shocking. Doesn't it feel that way to you? Yeah, this feels like a moment that would have happened in the later Transformers comics, right? Mm. Where we see a more doubtful and dithering Optimus and watching how that makes the troops get angry at him. Like, do you remember the storyline where Ratchet and Megatron get fused into mm -hmm. one being and then like fix it basically tells Optimus like I can save Ratchet but I'd also have to save Megatron and Cup's like yelling at Prime saying don't do it mm -hmm. and then Optimus like do it and all the Autobots look at him and they're all angry at him hmm. you know and I remember as a kid well I was a teenager at that point when it would be like 14 15 and I remember thinking like oh I am not terribly comfortable with dithering worrying prime that that's not how he's supposed, he's supposed to be like like nurturing caring dad who's like always like being his best self and here we see like this little crack in the armor a little bit because like often it's like i did what i thought was right and actually i think in this particular episode this works and i'll tell you why the autobots haven't done doodly squat for two episodes mm -hmm. right they have been on the defensive, and they have not been able to do the action hero thing that they are accustomed to, especially people like Ironhide, right? Ironhide is Optimus' bodyguard. He's the guy who gets in the way of the, of the fire to, you know, protect his, his fellow comrades. 
all he, Optimus has been telling everybody to do for the last like 30 minutes, counting the first episode, is sit on your hands. And what has it gotten them? It's gotten them, you know, one way ticket into nowhere. So this having dissent feels like it's getting even worse. It's bad enough that they had to like abandon their friends, leave humanity at Megatron's hands, and now the bickering and recriminations are gonna happen on the ship. So like everything's unspooling for our heroes. And I think that this is all teeing up for a magnificent payoff at the end. You might not agree with me, but I think this is great. So Huffer complains about the situation, duh, while Cliff Jumper <laughs> realizes that they could always change their mind and turn around. He runs up to the ship's controls. And Prime says, Perhaps I did make the wrong decision. Cliff Jumper, turn us around. We're going back to Earth. And as Cliff Jumper fiddles with the controls, he finds the course is locked in and can't be changed. So Prime has Hound check their destination. Uh-oh, it's the sun. <laughs> all the Autobots are shocked, at least all of the Season 1 Autobots, because strangely, that's all we see on the ship. Even if you say they left the Dinobots in the closet back home, there should still be 31 Autobots on this ship without them, and someone forgot to tell the animators. But anyway, Prime says... Cosmos, link up with Teletran 1. Negative, Prime. I can't interface. So yes, Cosmos is the tiny green Autobot spaceship, sort of designed like your stereotypical 1950s round UFO. More on him in a sec. Right now, as they get closer and closer to the sun, Berger's spaceship is starting to sizzle, as are its occupants. Hey, my... My circuits are overheating. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll vaporize. Cosmos, take action. Like what? If I knew, I'd do it myself. And then we see Cosmos transform, and he is a short, rotund little fellow, almost as wide as he is tall. If any of the Transformers are fat, he is the fat one. <laughs> he heads to the outer door of Burger's ship. Anything is better than nothing. Cosmos comes in and tries to reprogram the ship, but he can't. The Autobots are shocked. Now, Cosmos is voiced by Michael McConaughey, who also does tracks. At a TFCon a while back, he revealed that for Cosmos, he was asked to do a bad Peter Lorre impression. And Peter Lorre being an old 1940s actor. Mm-hmm. From... It was in Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah, M, but then mm. later on in some of those silly horror movies like The Raven with Vincent Price. But yeah, yeah he was a yeah, big, he, big name in the 40s. And Boo Berry, if anybody doesn't remember Peter Lorre, Boo Berry's performance is based, basically based on <laughs> Peter Lorre. You know, that, that stereotype of the, the guy with the really weird, whispery voice who lives in the haunted house. <laughs> but also in this scene, when Optimus is talking to Cosmos when he's still in like spacecraft mode, we get to see his, his insides, which is actually pretty neat. Like They don't look like other Autobot insides like in terms of, like you know, here's the dashboard and here's the seat and everything. This, this is a spaceship, like some kind of like if Floro Derry designed <laughs> yeah. 1950s spaceship interiors, right? Like Destination Moon as designed by Floro Derry. I, oh, I love Cosmos. Uh, he is so adorable. And, and he's such a strange design vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. Like he obviously didn't scan an Earth form. Right. He's, 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 he's pure Cybertronian. 
I'm sure they're going to give us a complete elaborate backstory of why Cosmos doesn't have an Earth mode, right? No, they don't tell us anything about Cosmos. We don't know anything. We don't know how he knows the other Autobots all of a sudden. He's just been in the background all this time, I guess. I don't know. I don't know! Well, his Falkert said he likes to stay in space, so he's just been in orbit all this time, hanging out. <laughs> oh, actually, I, I don't remember if it said he liked it or if it said he was lonely because he's always in space. But <laughs> I didn't. I, we don't do our research on four million years later. We just we just opine. <laughs> we leave the research to Chris McFeely. We just spout <laughs> off opinions. <laughs> That's right. Oh. So here's something that I haven't said in a while. We cut to under the sea where we're back in the old original undersea Decepticon base. The Decepticons have brought Berger down here, but instead of being awed by the purpleness of it all, he's still going on about the three cities he was promised. And Megatron laughs at Berger up in the ante, but he's got more important concerns right now. He's in front of the big screen trying to get a signal. It's almost time for Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> a rather spacecraft of misfortune... Oy. As Megatron has some sort of satellite nearby burger ship, apparently, that will let him witness the final demise of the Autobots. It's worth stopping and listening at the beginning of the scene. Like, when the transition happens, and just as the, the scene starts with Megatron's base, he laughs as he's watching the TV. Frank Walker really put some relish on that one. Like, to make <laughs> it, like, like, he sounds, like, devilishly, but genuinely happy. Like, this is what Megatron would sound like if you got him exactly what he wanted for his birthday, you know? <laughs> Which they did, basically. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we're going to find out in a second. Yeah. So we cut to the inside of the ship, and things aren't looking good. The Autobots are all sparking and steaming, collapsing onto the floor. And back at Deceptitown under the sea, Megatron's counting down as the ship gets closer and closer to the sun. As he gets to zero, the ship clearly explodes. No fooling, legitimate huge explosion. Did we just see all the Autobots die? That puts me in the mood to spend money. Because <laughs> we're here at our first commercial break. I do have to wonder, like, this is something where I would, I, it would be worth going to therapy just to find out what impact this, this cycle has had on me as a person. Where it's like, let's get you really, really emotionally worked up. And then, hey, maybe take some of that stress out on some, you know, consumerism. Like, you just <laughs> buy those feelings away. <laughs> Push down all that anxiety with a couple of Cabbage Patch Kids. What do you say? <laughs> I will. <laughs> so, okay, I'm feeling really worked up. Because I, I do... When I was a kid, I watched this episode. This one was, this felt scary to me. Like, I, I think I knew in my heart of hearts that there's no way they're going to kill off all the Autobots. But there was no denying that image on the screen, you know? And mm -hmm. they're, like, millions of miles. I knew, at least by that time, that the, the sun is 93 million miles away. 93 miles times a million more. Quite a trip we've so they're far, far away. They can't get back here by the end of the episode. And now I just watched them explode. You know? Oh, my gosh. So what kinds of products or foods can you put in front of me so I can chase all of that upset away? <laughs> well, speaking of the sun, here's a commercial for the first action figure to change color in sunlight. Zartan from G.I. Joe. He's an evil master of disguise. Zartan changes color right Introducing Zartan. Zartan changes color in sunlight. 
Satan. <laughs> Talk about disco themes. I don't. I don't know what it was about this action figure, but man, did I covet it! Like the moment I saw the commercial, it was like mm-hmm. the pupils dilated and everything, and I was like, I, I, I don't know why, but I gotta have that, mom. Yep. You know, it's like sell my brother. I don't care. Just get, <laughs> get it, get it here. <laughs> he comes with a, a swamp skier, and he has a mask, <laughs> <laughs> and he turns blue. <laughs> Same here. I was so into G.I. Joe at this point, and I lived near a Navy base, and there was a little shop on the Navy base that had a tendency to get things sooner than, like, regular stores in town. So oh I had gosh. a lot of kids who's who were Navy families, and this one kid brought Zartan to school one day because he found him first before anyone else did. And I was like, wow. oh, my God, you found <laughs> Zartan. <laughs> He also had like the kiss makeup and everything, and like yeah. kiss was a big deal back then. Have I told you the story of when I ruined Christmas with Zartan? <laughs> I don't think so. It was it was um so my brother, my little bro- my immediately younger brother, because I have like you know dozens of siblings, yes, and, and counting. We found the Christmas stash one <laughs> year that my parents were hiding all the stuff, and I don't remember how far ahead of Christmas it was, but it was it was far enough that like I had to wait a long time. And, and so I called my brother. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I found it. And we're digging through. And we found that we were both getting Zartan that year. <laughs> and there was this, this flash, like heat, like on our bodies. Like, oh, my gosh, we're getting Zartan for Christmas. <laughs> and the, almost immediately after, and this is where, this is why Chip Chase is so important to me, whoever, because this is a very Chip Chasey thing to do. Is like the moment that, that, that feeling fled, I was like, I just ruined Christmas. Because now I'm not going to be surprised. <laughs> and now I'm just going to be thinking about this. And then when I open it, it's going to be like, oh, wow, yeah, I got Zartan. I knew that. And from then on, I never, like now, from that that moment, like so changed me that like, I really don't want you to spoil a surprise for me. And I don't care how small Mm. it is. I don't care if it's like, hey, I got your fruit striped gum. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to chew it for three seconds. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it was was Zartan. He ruined Christmas for me. Rather, I ruined Christmas by way of Zartan. (laughs) So now I'm sad again, and I think I need to be tempted with another product. (laughs) Well... Cuddle up to this pet mogwai, because when you have a pet mogwai, you want to keep him out of the light. And never, never feed him after midnight. Yes, never. It's fun to care for Gizmo. He's a lovable pet. I'll take care of you, Gizmo. <laughs> I'll take care of you, Gizmo. Mwah. He's it's okay for me to kiss my stuffed pet. <laughs> The moment I heard that theme song, it like rushed back to me. I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't heard this in 35 years, but I remember all of the words. What was wrong with us? I had that doll too. Did you really? Yep. And you know what else glows like the sun is musical glowworm. Oh, some some little like electronic MIDI style music will certainly lull me off to sleep <laughs> while this glowing light is right next to my face. <laughs> Musical Glowworm, Glowbug, and Glow Butterfly, each sold separately from Hasbro Preschool. Nothing says getting able to get some good sleep other than having a light shine in your face. <laughs> uh, it, it, they always made it look like it was really easy to turn the, the glow light on, but I, I had one. They weren't that easy to use. Like I felt like I had to squeeze it really hard and then just in the right spot in order to get the face to light up. But Anyway, okay, so I, yep. Money spent and still feeling <laughs> sad. So what happens to the Autobots, Hoover? 
Well, we return to Deceptitown Under the Sea, where Megatron's declaring that with the Autobots being subatomic particles, that's an interesting phrase. Cobra Commander once used that same phrase. True. Nice shooting, Commander! I am sick of you, Flint. In moments, you will be converted to subatomic particles. They can now turn their attention to the press conference that they and Berger will attend. And we see the tower rise out of the ocean, and the Decepticons all fly off. As Megatron says, like, we've got a press conference to attend, he, like, leans down and he taps Berger on the back to, like, like sort of, like, as if to gently, like, <laughs> like guide him out of the room. But when he taps him, Berger stumbles, like, whoa, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and I love this idea of, like, Megatron knows his own strength. He's a very skilled person. So, like, he made it look like it was going to be gentle, but he hit him with aggression. <laughs> what a monster. And I also love, I want to say, from a storyteller standpoint, I love that they didn't come back to show us what happened to the Autobots. They'd leave us hanging. Yep. Megatron won. You know? They're dead. And, like, I, my, my tension is not released. I'm still upset. <laughs> well, meanwhile, we return to Spike. And he's showing the videotape evidence to the mayor, revealing that the Decepticons were only cosplaying as Autobots. And the mayor wonders how they could have been so stupid. Spike declares that they have to bring the Autobots back, but the mayor thinks that that may not be possible. But he does have something else in mind. And then we cut away to my house, where <laughs> nine-year-old me is complaining that I don't have enough metal-colored crayons to finish coloring Megatron. And then Mom gets my name wrong and tells me that the real Megatron's coming on TV. And my mom and dad are super off-model here. <laughs> the house and furniture aren't even the right color. It's worth listening to the performances here. Everybody is joyous about Megatron. Yeah. Like, the kid is like, I, I need to color Megatron right! And the mom's like, oh, but... You know, that can wait. The real Megatron's on TV. She's like, oh, my gosh. It's, it's, like, it's like Elvis is coming over to the house. She's so excited about this. Again, I love this setup of pointing out, like, you know what? People are easily manipulated, and we should be careful with this power. They're never saying this, like, explicitly in this episode, but that is definitely a theme throughout this whole thing. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, it, there, was, there was an episode of the Clerks cartoon, right, where, like, the... Yes. Um, do you know the scene I'm talking about? Crumbs, 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 crumbs. yay! <laughs> crumbs, 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 yay! Do something. <laughs> and The Simpsons does this a lot too. And then in like Monty Python, with like the whole like I, I'm an individual, I think for myself. And that one guy, the crowd goes, I'm not. You know, the, the this idea of like something dangerous happens to us when we assemble as a crowd and all do things, right? And I shouldn't say dangerous. I should say dynamic to the point of danger, right? Because, like, on the other hand, it's like I attend sporting events on purpose, and there's something really, like, cathartic about all screaming at the same time when your team does a thing that you liked, you know? But at the same time, it's like, I, I, th I think it's worth watching this two-parter also as, like, he's subtweeting at the whole world about, like, be careful, when you're consuming media and when your friends get really, really jazzed about something, maybe, you know, ask them a few reasons why. <laughs> Don't just take it on, on faith that like, oh, everybody seems excited about this Megatron guy. There must be something to do it. Maybe he is great. Maybe he is the leader, you know? So anyway, when she says the real Megatron's on TV, what's happening? We cut away to the TV studio where Megatron, flanked by Soundwave and Starscream, is doing a live press conference with reporters in the audience. Spike, Sparkplug, Chip, and the mayor all enter the room. 
and Megatron addresses the crowd. This is Megatron. Any questions? You, in front. Thank you, sir. Mr. Uh, Megatron, now that the Autobots are gone, what are your plans here on Earth? I'm glad you asked, Earth Germ. What? My plan is to conquer this mudball of a planet and suck it dry of energy. And the audience all gasp and react, absolutely stunned, including Burger. And then Megatron reveals that Berger was his partner and responsible for this deception. Oh, a bus just drove by and Megatron just pitched <laughs> Berger right under it. Oh. The crowd instantly turns on Berger, who hangs his head in shame. Everyone gathered begins bad-mouthing Berger as Decepticons just stand there and watch the fruits of their labors. There is so much I love about this scene. Like, I love every layer of it. It's first, there's like the delicious payback to this guy who, like, really made a career out of lying to himself about his real motivation, right? Like, he told himself a story. He sold himself a bill of goods that he was helping the good guys. And while, you know, at the same time, voicing what his real motivation was I want three cities, I want power, you know? <laughs> and now the truth is like pointing in his face. How is the truth pointing in his face? Well, is it Spike or Sparkplug or Chip who are telling him the truth? No, he wouldn't listen to them. The other mayor even said, like, your quest for power is going to destroy you. He was like, funny, it doesn't look that way, you know? Nobody was going to be able to do that to him except the one person who, you know, he, he sort of like, he, I didn't say, I wouldn't say he trusted him, but he teamed up with him. And this also goes to like what real villains do. Real nasty villains break their own tools the moment they don't need them anymore. And Megatron has done this multiple times. It's like, if I don't need you, then I will destroy you. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to really enjoy I'm going to stand here and watch you. What did you want most in the whole world, Burger? I wanted to like command people and ex extol power over people. And I wanted them to do things that I said to do. Well, okay, how about I put you in a room with all these people who are just going to condemn you and scream at you and shout at you and you know tell you that you're nothing, right? What better punishment? And this is exactly what Burger did to the Autobots. So it's also like, you know, payback's a real pain in the tuckus, right? So, and, and, and it reminds me also of, like, the Ghost Rider thing. Like, you know how Ghost Rider's, like, one of his powers is, like, makes the, the evil person feel how their victims felt? Mm -hmm. Like, he transfers. The I was just there. The penance stare. I was just talking about this with my friend Rob Stenzinger and, like, why he likes that character so much because of the penance stare. And, like, the penance stare is, like, instant empathy. Here's my, I'm going to stir up some taster's choice empathy. Boom. <laughs> you want to see what it feels like to be Optimus? Remember Optimus last time when you, like, wrecked his whole life and made him exiled from the world? Well, now you're getting it. You don't get to get on a spaceship, though, Burger. How do you like that? And when he looks down at the floor, like, so I go through this whole emotional journey, like, watching this scene, right? Like, wow, what an evil guy Megatron is. What, what wonderful payback for Burger! And then he looks at the floor. And then I'm like, oh, he's just a man. He's just a greedy little boy. And he got a little bit higher than what he could have done. You know, got too close to the sun, to use the sun metaphor again. Hmm. You know? And, and now he's ruined. And suddenly I start feeling pity for this guy. This moment is packed. This is a very dense you know, this is like a jawbreaker of a moment in the sense that, like, you can sit on it for a long time and there's a lot to unravel in it. So really, really good. And strangely enough, it doesn't have anything to do with any Transformers. It's just watching a poor, dumpy human with purple <laughs> hair look sad. And even Burger's armed guards turn on him and rush him with their assault rifles. But one blast from Starscream's finger... 
destroys their guns. <laughs> he still has his null rays on his arms, but he's shown shooting with his finger at their guns. Okay. This is the Cybertronian version of flicking somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a lower power version of the null ray. Yeah. Well, Megatron declares... Is anyone brave or stupid enough to oppose us? This city is under martial law, and I am the marshal. And that is a great quote. <laughs> we cut away to our new Seeker trio flying through the air. Their mission? Destruction. And they fly right through buildings, causing their collapse. They shoot at civilians in the streets... And they blow up abandoned cars and traffic jams. Well, they give them just enough time to abandon right. the cars before they blow them up. <laughs> and also, I am I am shocked. I am shocked, Hoover, that you didn't include this audio clip of Dirge saying, let's teach them the meaning of sorrow <laughs> as he dive bombs the city. As I was watching this, I'm like, this is like, I don't know if this is a Hoover fever dream or like a, a Hoover happiest dream, but it's just like the three new seekers... I'm not kidding, everybody. They just, like, fly through buildings mm -hmm. and blow them up. And, like, Thrust, like, flies alongside of, like, glass skyscrapers and just, like, tears the windows off of them. <laughs> this is, like, every Decepticon fan's fantasy is watching them just run roughshod over everything and nobody's doing anything about it because there's nobody to do anything about it. Yep. Well, Megatron renames the city Megatronia 1 and declares that there soon will be many more. <laughs> Berger unloads his guilty conscience, saying that he witnessed the Autobots' destruction himself. And Spike hopes against hope that it's not true and sheds tears at the thought. This is, again, adding to this kind of gravity of this episode. We still don't know if the Autobots are alive or dead. And then when Spike, bless you, Corey Burton, what a performance, when he does like this whisper like, oh, no. You know, and then mm -hmm. it closes on his face. We see the tears. It's, it sells it. It sells it to my little 11-year-old brain. I'm like, oh, my gosh. This really is the end, and the bad guys won. And I thought I liked them. I don't like them so much anymore. <laughs> Omegatron announces that all flesh creatures will be put to work filling Energon cubes. And Spike declares that even if the Autobots are gone, he still has to clear their names. And he's still got the tape to do it with, so he runs out. And speaking of tape, seeing Spike run off, Soundwave launches Laserbeak and Ravage after him. <clears throat> may, may I interrupt? <laughs> Go ahead. Read that sentence again, please. And speaking of tape, seeing Spike run off, Soundwave launches Laserbeak and Ravage One, after him. two. Let me state for the record, in a previous episode, we saw one tape take Optimus Prime down with a shoulder check. <laughs> now Soundwave sees the need to send two tapes after Spike. The math tells the story. Okay. <laughs> Well, here's how I read that. He sent Ravage after him like the other day, and Ravage failed. So this time, <laughs> Ravage has to get help from the employee of the month. I see Ravage is, is being shadowed by his yep. manager. <laughs> <laughs> Laserbeak's like, no. And Ravage's like, what? No, not like that. Oh, my gosh. You have to you hit the PLU code. What? I don't even know what that is. Look at the keyboard. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm not reading it that way. I'm reading it as Soundwave is not a dummy. He knows that Spike is the greatest threat to the Decepticons. So I gotta, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta put like the the muscle on this one. Well, Spike trips over a light as he runs away, and the videotape goes flying out of his hands. 
so it's destroyed by Laserbeak. Mm. Spike looks behind him as Ravage fast approaches, and we head to our second commercial break only ten minutes into this episode. So it looks like the third act's going to be a long one. We better spend some money in anticipation. <laughs> I love that that's our answer to everything. <laughs> oh no, there's problems in the world. Spend money! <laughs> <laughs> that's what they live taught me. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, so what do we spend money on now? Well, since Burger has caused all the trouble this episode, let's go back to 1985 when burgers weren't causing trouble and only causing oh. huge sales at Burger King with their Thundercats kids meal. Burger King announces Thundercats meal packs. There's four of them in all for you to collect and trade. Oh, a different toy every week. Cool, I got the pencil topper. Oh, I got the light switch cover. <laughs> Or if you want to stay away from burgers thanks to this episode, how about changing it up and getting a chili cheese dog at Wendy's? Hot diggity dog diggity, you put cheese on it, you put chili on it, blue chili and cheese on it. Hot diggity dog diggity, lots of beef to it, down to the very last bite. Even Count Floyd wants one. Oh man. <laughs> or if you're more of a sides guy, don't miss this commercial for McDonald's hot fries. Um, I detected a little innuendo in that commercial. <laughs> innuendo in 80s commercials? What? Everybody's enjoying French fries, but there are some serious undertones where everybody's fanning themselves over members of, of the opposite sex or gender sitting next to them or standing across from them and looking at each other with uh, very suggestive ways. And they're all teenagers. <laughs> you know, so, salty, fatty fries, I guess, yeah, I guess that was part of our lives when we were teenagers. And then there was all thinking about kissing other people right that's that's pretty much all you think about when you're 16 17 so yeah I, all right mcdonald's i concede uh there can't possibly be any innuendo in any commercials it's impossible <laughs> hot hot jeez stop saying it hot stop it <laughs> we return to spike about to get pounced on by ravage but spike ducks and ravage goes headfirst into a pile of audio video equipment <laughs> This is where Ravage says, not again! <laughs> Poor Ravage. Laserbeak just shakes, just, you know, SMH. Poor Laserbeak. At this point, Burger's losing his mind. He's been outed by Megatron, and all his dreams have gone up in flames. It is the end. <laughs> the apocalypse. Burger. And Burger goes off running. Laserbeak is chasing Spike down the hall, but Burger grabs a set light and sort of like a lamp, standing lamp that you'd use to light a TV set, and he whacks Laserbeak out of the air with it. Ravage escapes the pile of equipment, but Spike quickly shines another of the lights right at him, temporarily blinding him. And Burger's obviously rethinking a lot of his choices. He asks Spike if he's alright, and Megatron interjects. Compassion is for fools, Burger. You're going nowhere, boy. And with that, Soundwave and Starscream pick up Spark Plug and Chip, and Spike knows he can't do anything now or else they get squished. Spike asks Megatron not to hurt them, and he asks, Why would he? 
healthy slaves do better work. This is a good scene too. This also, I remember as a child, this made this whole episode feel so desperate. Again, everybody, we still haven't seen what happened to the Autobots. We don't know if they're okay. And even if they are, they're really, really far away. It's just Spike and Megatron now. Now, Spike has been very brave when it's just him and Megatron. But now Chip and his dad are in the hands of two of the scariest dudes in the army. And so Spike pleads, and it's very earnest. He's like, please, please don't do this, you know? We've never seen Spike have to acquiesce to the Decepticons before. And I don't think I processed it that way when I was a kid, but I felt the emotion of this moment. And for Megatron to so cheerfully be like, why why would I kill anybody? Because I'm going to, you know, make you work for the rest of your lives, you know? (laughs) And, and he, he does it so happily, and it just makes it seem even more nightmarish. And, and Berger's meltdown also kind of helps, because he says, this is the apocalypse, right? Mm-hmm. This feels kind of scary, man. Yeah. And this next part is really, really great. It's really great. And I, I'll, I'll interrupt you again after you explain what happens next. <laughs> well, Megatron asks Berger if he still wants his reward, and he does. And Megatron says Berger's going to get everything he's earned and laughs knowingly. Somehow, I don't think Berger's getting those cities. <laughs> this is where the ghost of Dr. Archerville shows up and just goes, mm-mm-mm. <laughs> I feel you, pal. I have been there. That is hard. You know, you need, you need a hug from the doctor? Come on over here. <laughs> I love this because moments ago, Berger showed compassion. He's like, are you okay, kid? He picks Spike up after he, after he takes down Laserbeak, which is actually no small shakes, right? MVP. Mm-hmm. But then when Megatron says, you want your reward, he's like, he doesn't just say yes. He goes, yes! He, like, he's like almost desperate, and it shows that his redemption hasn't happened yet. He's still not, quote-unquote, saved in that, like, seeing the error of his ways, because if he's given a chance to, you know, fall on Megatron's side, he'll take it. And then comes the final breaking of the tool when Megatron says, oh, you're going to get everything you deserve. And this is, I mean, thinking about, like, you know, Christian mythology, Christian religion, whatever you want to call it, this is kind of what the devil does. <laughs> I'll give you everything you want. Oh, but there's a catch. What's the catch? Eternal damnation. What? No. Yes. Megatron just damned you when he laughed like that. Well, we cut instantly to a shot where humans are gathering Energon for Megatron. And we see several different shots of humans working hard to fill Energon cubes. And in one shot, we see Blitzwing, that triple-changing tank and jet, standing next to... Well, Blitzwing's standing right next to Astro Train, and this is his very uneventful first appearance. <laughs> He's just standing here pointing his gun while humans work. He's also a triple changer, and we see him in the opening credits. He can turn from a train engine car to a space shuttle. And I'll tell you more about him later, because he has no lines in this episode. <laughs> so human slaves, including Chip, Spike, Sparkplug, and the Mayor, are just filling up energon cubes in this factory setting. And we see Berger has been put to work right along with the others. Berger's former armed guards walk by and harass him. What's the matter, traitor? Real word something new to you? Berger sure doesn't have many friends in these ranks. Still, I can't forget how he tried to help me. Just talk and more work. Yeah. And then we cut to space where all the Autobots went kablooey. But wait, they didn't. If it hadn't been for your force field, Trailbreaker, we'd be molecules now. And this is where I just fall out of my chair with relief. (laughs) Like, just, like, spill out on the floor. Oh, my gosh, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, we knew, we knew, but it's still, they took their time getting to this point. So the ship did, in fact, explode, and the Autobots are all floating in space in a giant force field bubble pulled along by Cosmos. But Prime notices something's wrong. They're still headed towards the sun. And Cosmos explains that his navigation is still controlled by Teletran 1. I have always loved this this scene, this shot, like this image of Trailbreaker sort of standing with his arms and legs spread apart and a bunch of beams coming out of him from like both his arms and legs, but also like from his hips and his head, like forming with this star pattern of energy that makes a glowing orb around them. And then there's a like a, a pyramid of lines heading out of that orb to Cosmos and glowing around him, right? And all the Autobots just like sort of hovering there in space. And this image of Trailbreaker being like, it's, it's, it looks like he's holding the mountain up kind of pose, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you know this can't be easy for him to hold all this together because he's only used the force field for short amounts of time. Cosmos, I'm sure, is not as fast as that giant ship that Berger gave them is or was, mm-hmm. you know? And so he's got to hold this thing together for however long it's going to take them to travel 93 million miles. Oh, wait, back <laughs> into the sun. <laughs> well, no time to dwell on the Autobots as we cut back to the factory where Chip and Spike are still working and night has fallen. Chip has an idea, but he'll need to get back to Autobot HQ and use Teletran 1. Spike decides to stage a distraction to mask Chip's escape, and he runs to a cart full of Energon cubes and shoves it across the room and right into Rumble. (laughs) The cart pushes the poor little guy into a wall of equipment, causing him to be electrically shocked continuously, and Megatron runs up and demands the flesh creature shut off the power. Now, Megatron didn't have to do that, <laughs> but Rumble is I knew useful. you picked up on this. Yeah, I knew. Like, cause, like if it was Starscream, Megatron would probably stand there laughing for a little while. <laughs> you know, like, do, should we shut the power off? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that hearts were coming out of your shoulders, neck, chest, and head the moment like Megatron's like, hey, shut the power off, man. That's Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think in Megatron's mind, Rumble is kind of his property. So, (laughs) henceforth, Rumble gets saved. (laughs) Chip wheels out the door, but he trips an alarm on the way out. And Megatron sees him escape, but laughs, saying he's harmless. And then something funny happens to Megatron's voice. Thrust! Bring him back! Now, I can't tell if someone else had to do the voice for this one line or if they just didn't put the usual effects on Megatron's voice, but it sounds really thin and higher. Yeah, it sounds like they just didn't put the effect on it for some reason. It sounds really thin. And and that line is always, like, even when I was a kid, man... We are such dorks that we like pay attention to this stuff. But like, even when I was a kid, I was like, "He sounded weird there, didn't he?" <laughs> I said, "I said to a room full of people who were doing something else." <laughs> so Thrust runs out to search for the mobilized human, but Chip manages to hide in the shadows before wheeling himself into the back of a semi truck being loaded up by one of the slaves. And the semi truck leaves with Chip inside. And when it stops for gas, Chip exits the back, shocking the driver. This is just like a cute joke moment, but this is another example of like how high quality Sunbow cartoons were and how well thought out these shots were. Is like we see the truck driver get into the cab and we see his face go like, huh? And then we see over his shoulder looking at the rearview mirror and we see the back of the truck. We see Chip get out. We don't see Chip's face. We just like sort of see like a, a fuzzy image of him in the mirror. But in the mirror is another background painting of the mountain range and the full moon. Mm-hmm. 
it's only a couple seconds as Chip's like, thanks, this is my stop, you know? And the guy's like, wow, there was a person back there. What? <laughs> it's always funny when grown-ups are confused and angry. Because <laughs> it is when you're 11. There's nothing, if you ever want to know the path to a child's heart, just humiliate a grown-up in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> Dump gack on their head, it always works. Yay, the grown-up's mad. But it's it, it's a really like it, it made me stop and pause like the composition of it and like the kind of framing that would have had to have been done to like arrange all these elements together. They didn't have to do it that way. And yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's one of those things where it's like you can see the care and talent and thoughtfulness that went into making the show. Mm-hmm. Well, we do a scene transition and voila, Chip's already at Autobot headquarters. He's trying to get information from Teletran one who is not talking here. And my theory on that is that the Autobots downloaded the Teletran 1 AI and took it with them. Oh. The, com- the computer still functions, but the AI functionality is gone. Good theory, because I wondered about that. <laughs> so Chip learns that Megatron changed the flight path of the ship to fly into the sun. And Chip asks if Cosmos has been destroyed too. So Chip knows who Cosmos is, so we just never got to see that meeting. <laughs> Just then, who makes a big hole in the roof but Thrust, who I guess used his wheelchair detector or something to track Chip here. Okay, now you had to notice how Thrust entered the room, right? Because <laughs> this is really funny. It's a recurring theme in this episode that the just just got to crash through things cockpit first. But, but when he pokes through, first his cockpit, or his nose cone and cockpit goes, boop, pops out, and then he backs up and then smashes all the way through. It's almost like, is he in here? Oh, yeah, there he is. And then he goes back in all the way. Like, he's done this, like, nine times in other buildings, you know? <laughs> we only get to see the time he was successful. He's done this 40 other times That's on right. the way. Is he in this building? No. Is he in this building? No. <laughs> yeah, and one of those would have been the gag where you hear a woman scream and he goes, sorry. You know. <laughs> well, Thrust transforms, enters the arc, and menaces the boy. We miss you back at the power plant, human. Why are you here? I, uh, I... You didn't come here just to see this leftover computer. And then Thrust shoots the computer and it explodes. You pile of reject parts, I'll... Reject parts? And with that, Thrust picks him up, transforms, and heads back to the plant. Now, it wasn't until I watched this scene carefully that I finally noticed. You would think that I would have noticed this when I was coloring that Thrust Urge and Ramjet poster for you. Mm-hmm. But Thrust breaks Decepticon tradition in his design, not just yeah. because he has the cone head. But as far as I know, this is the only Decepticon I've ever seen with yellow eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that same feeling while I was watching this scene. I was like, did they color them wrong, or does he just have yellow eyes? Yeah, I, I don't know what the design choice was behind that. Was it just because, he? oh, well, he's got a lot of red on him and we need a little bit more visual interest in the character? Maybe, but... I guess so, but it is unusual because stereotypically all the Autobots have blue eyes and all the Decepticons have red eyes, so... Mm-hmm, that's how you know the difference between good and evil until you yeah. get to G.I. Joe and then it reverses where the Joes have the red <laughs> lasers, the Cobra has the blue lasers. <laughs> Well, we head back to the power plant, and Chip is put back to work and is lamenting to Spike that he should have never gone back to Autobot headquarters because now Teletran is destroyed on top of everything else. And Spike tries to reassure him, but Chip now believes that there's no hope at all. 
Yeah, just before Thrust blows up Teletran 1, Chip pleads with him and says, like, it's all we've got left. And, like, again, adding to, like, this this real sense of, like, just dread and dreariness and, like, it, it really is over. Even though now we know the Autobots are coming back, but Chip doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. So, and, yeah, when he said, Chip says, like, now there's, you know, it's like... And Spike is even like, well, it's not your fault. You tried, and it's not like Teletran could have done that much without the Autobots anyway. So this it's just, just this feeling like, did Dostoevsky write this episode? Like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, is it going to end with Spike and Chip face down in a ditch? Oh, my gosh. Well, we cut back to the Autobots in space, and Cosmo suddenly realizes that he has control back. And it seems Thrust blowing up Teletran once severed its control of his guidance systems. So now the Autobots head back to Earth, pulled by Cosmos, and, and they're still held together by Trailbreakers Force Field. Now, Jersey, you wrote a little book about rockets. How long does it take mm-hmm. a rocket or some sort of spaceship to get 93 million miles? <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a page in the book where we talk about the mightiest rocket ever created on Earth was the, the Saturn V, which took um, American astronauts to the moon. It took them a couple days to get there, and that's 250,000 miles on average. And so it's like, guess how long it would take that rocket to get to Alpha Centauri, our nearest neighbor, right? And Todd the Bear says, like, 10 years. He's like, well, more like 100,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alpha Centauri is, is quite a ways farther away than, you know, Saul, our son. But it would take months, if not more. I don't know how fast Cosmos is as a Cybertronian spacecraft. But, yeah, it, even as a kid, I, I had watched my Cosmos, the television series hosted by Carl Sagan, and I know that it takes light eight minutes to get here. So even if he's traveling at the speed of light, <laughs> we ain't getting here before the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is another one where, you know, it's like maybe Skyfire showed up. I'm like, hey, everybody, <laughs> why didn't you take me to the sun? Oh, well, about that. We kind of didn't want you in the ship with us. I can give you a ride home. Okay, thanks, Skyfire. We're always glad you're here to bail us out and then never talk about you again. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how they got back. <laughs> but they're, they're on their way back. Now, as the Autobots fly past the camera, we get a shot of a handful of the Autobots in the bubble, and we do see Grimlock in there. So presumably the Dinobots were on the shuttle as well and not just left in the closet on the Ark. They were like, they were like, hey, Burger included a closet, but we don't wear clothes. What do you do closet for? And Grimlock's like, me no. <laughs> they all shuffle in there. <laughs> well, we cut back to the power plant where it's now daytime. Maybe it is like years later. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, Soundwave detects energy transmissions from jet engines. It seems the military is on its way to wage war against the Decepticons. And Megatron orders Starscream outside, and instantly he flies out right <laughs> through the roof. What is it with the Seekers just flying through buildings in this episode? You know, the commercial break for this really should have been a, like all Kool-Aid commercials. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the Seekers were like, man, this guy's, a, this guy's amazing. I love this guy. <laughs> what, what, what does he do? Oh, he brings beverages to the humans, but he always smashes through a wall when he does it. So like every time he brings them refreshment, they have to call an insurance company <laughs> for property damage. <laughs> and all the Decepticons laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the theme this week for them. Uh, and Starscream goes, oh, yeah, and smashes through the ceiling. <laughs> so Starscream calls for the Decepticons to transform, and he's soon joined by the other five Seekers and Blitzwing. 
and there's shown to be several more military planes than there are Decepticons, but even still, the Decepticons make short work of the military, blowing up a lot of the planes. Their pilots parachuting out first, of course, mm. and sending the rest of them retreating. Now, the description is short because not a lot of stuff happens here, but it's really well animated. It's beautifully done, and it's kind of cool to see American military planes actually you know, trying to hold their own against Decepticons. It doesn't let, the fight's not a long one because, mm -hmm. you know, they're overmatched because there's a lot of Decepticon jets now. But A, it's cool to see all the jets in formation. You know, mm -hmm. you get to see them all take off together. And B, it's it's just, it's cool to see like a valiant stand by the humans, even though they get their butts whomped. And it's really like, they do a lot of like Robotech kind of like dogfighty kind of stuff here. So this is one where it's like, look up from your book and look up from your phone and watch what's happening on the screen when this one's mm -hmm. on. Well, Megatron points out the Decepticon's superiority to his Earth slaves, claiming other cities will fall next. And then Burger gets brave and rushes Megatron, saying, No, I won't let you! But Megatron literally slaps him right down to the ground, saying, Grovel for my amusement! And that looked painful. Yeah, it did. Like, he swats him good. Like, that was almost a Starscream slap. So, like, some, <laughs> some bones got broken on that one. But before Burger can do anything, the humans hear some familiar motor sounds. It's the sound of the Autobots. Megatron. No. Impossible. I saw you disintegrated. Illusion, Megatron. Just as you made the people of Earth see us Autobots as villains, so we, too, staged an illusion. Decepticons, assemble for battle! Autobots, transform! Goose bumps. <laughs> Goose bumps. All over my arms, man. This moment, it, it felt good when I was watching as a kid, and I love this scene now because, again, it's been almost 40 minutes, and we haven't seen the Autobots do anything except surrender over and over again. <laughs> and now it's like... Okay, there's a sort of a, a deficit that needs to be paid. What's that deficit? It's Optimus showing Megatron some what for. This whole scene here is like just panning left and right, showing how awesome Autobots are. <laughs> well, guess what happens? Big fighty fight, Decepticons on one side, <laughs> Autobots on the other. Check off your bingo card. <laughs> yeah, no, no imaginative fight scene here. It's literally I'm just standing across from each other, like, 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 uh, like two marching bands with guns just <laughs> shooting at each other. <laughs> it's like, okay, do we do want to do anything staging with like the the ground, like the the environment, or the you know using something in the environment in a creative fun way? No, let's just have them stand across each other and shoot. Okay. <laughs> and funnily, at first we see only this the first season Autobots, but eventually during this lengthy laser filled scene. We see a row of second season Autobots, but we still don't see any Dinobots here, so these two episodes are even worse than usual with showing everyone that's supposed to be here. We get numerous pans on groups of characters firing at the opposing team, and some of them are repeated like they really needed to fill time. <laughs> yeah, I did see that shot where they show Gears and Sea Spray twice, and it's like, oh, that was awkward. But <laughs> most of the pans are like really cool looking. And mm -hmm. I read this scene as is like this is total fan service of like okay you've been waiting for the Autobots to do something about their situation now we're going to give it to you and we're going to give you like another extra double gulp of it because mm -hmm. 
it, it's for me this is so satisfying i don't even need to hear the characters talk i just want to look at brawn being awesome just like mowing down Starscream. I want to watch Warpath just kicking the crap out of everybody. I want to watch Ironhide. And Ironhide is too. He's like, he sounds very cheerful when he shows up. He's like, yeah, let's show these guys some whatever, you know? It's such a pressure release, but it's also, it's like a comforting moment where it's like, don't worry, the good guys are here. And like, normally that feels very trite and cheesy in this kind of fiction. But here, I feel like they've they've done enough investment of the grim sort of end of the world kind of scenario so that when this happens... For me, it's very satisfying. I would say this is just as satisfying for me as the end of the No, no Place Like Springfield two-parter when Roadblock shows up at the end. And like, and they, like, they're, so they say, well, you will do something, won't you? And he's like, shucks, we might do a couple of things. You know? <laughs> and it's that gentle way of saying, like, we're here to help. You know? And like, after you've just been through like 45 minutes of agony, that's how this moment feels to me. I know it goes on a little bit long, but I think that's what it's all about. Well, it's visually great, too, because, you know, here are these scenes where no one is talking except for, like, Ironhide uh, says yeah. something once. But yeah. they show Braun, and Braun has two guns. It's like yeah. they knew enough about Braun's character that yeah. he doesn't just want to shoot the Decepticons once. He's going to shoot them twice. <laughs> oh, and like, I, like the idea, I like the idea of him, like, taking it from somebody, too. It's like, Cliff Jumper, you don't need this. But I, you don't need it. <laughs> Temper, you go sit over there and watch. <laughs> I know over there can't be too far because you won't be able to see, but just sit <laughs> close to us and watch. <laughs> but yeah, it's this is a thoroughly satisfying scene. And I say this as somebody who doesn't like stories that, that resolve everything with conflict. And even even Beachcomber, who also doesn't like conflict, is shooting at the Decepticons because it's like, yeah, this is this is an emergency. This is this is called for the higher stakes are are raised here. And and also Megatron, you just did the number one no no. You attacked humans, you know. Yep. You enslaved humans. You attacked humans. All right, that's it. You're getting slapped down now, and that's what happens, right? Yeah, the battle is over a minute long with hardly any dialogue, but eventually most of the Decepticons have fallen. Megatron declares that they've lost the advantage, and he leaps into the air, off to fight another day. And the Decepticons all follow. So the Autobots free all of the enslaved humans in the power plant, while the mayor apologizes profusely to Prime, asking that they please stay on Earth. And Berger has something to add. I doubt anyone will ever forgive me, but I'll, I'll make amends. I'll, I'll disband my private army. Oh, that's real big of you, Burger. They all quit when they found out what a dog lunch you are. What? <laughs> Jersey, have you ever heard the phrase dog lunch used as an insult to anyone? <laughs> Sparkplug oh. really must pick up some odd phrases on those oil derricks. I have been fascinated by that line since I was a child because I, yes, I have never heard anybody use that in conversation at any point in my life. Like, get over here, you dog lunch. Uh, as, as somebody who thinks animals are pretty awesome and we should treat them nicer than we do, part of me is like, I don't like the idea of creating a derogatory term out of food that you'd feed to a dog because you should feed a dog stuff that's good for it, right? Like, you shouldn't feed it <laughs> like a person like Burger. Dogs are too good for him. <laughs> But, but like, just, it, it also has, like, I'm, I'm also fascinated by, like, words that sound 
you know, like the, the sound of the word contributes to the meaning of the word, right? Like when you think of like Dickensian characters, like, oh, here's a character, like, oh, I'm trying to think of like, thinking of like Merdstrom, you know, like, and, and thinking mm. of like Burgess, Burgess Meredith's character in Time Enough at Last. Like he's talking about like how their names even sound wicked, you know? And so like when you say dog lunch, it has like, <laughs> you know, you, you can't say it without it sounding like you're saying something filthy and disgusting, you know? Like worm uh, tongue. Worm tongue, yeah, that kind of thing. And years ago on Twitter, I tried to get, I, I like used the word in a tweet and I said something about like, oh my gosh, this day just totally dog lunched me. And somebody called me out and like, are you trying to turn that into a thing? I don't think that's going to turn into a thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I was trying to turn it into a thing. It's probably not going to turn into a thing. <laughs> Unless you, dear listeners of this podcast, want to turn into a thing and we can all start using it colloquially amongst ourselves. <laughs> Because I, I was also trying to like hack it. It's like, it's not an insult. I'm not going to call a person a dog lunch. I'm going to say that like a dog lunch is a verb. Like, oh, this day like totally wrecked me. You know, oh my gosh, I just got dog lunched by, by Wednesdays. Am I right? Oh my gosh, that's what a dog lunch. But <laughs> it didn't take. <laughs> well, Prime tells Berger that he's going to face justice. And because he's optimist, he adds, may it be kinder to you than it was to us. Oh. <sighs> Dignity, dignity, poise, and grace. So good. He then has the Autobots transform and roll for home. Spike, spark plug, and ship all ride in Bumblebee, and the Autobots literally drive off into the sunset. Now you'd think they'd turn around and take the long road home because <laughs> I'd imagine them heading towards the sun would give them some bad flashbacks. <laughs> but as they're driving towards the sunset, they stop and hold on Bumblebee, and who's sitting in Bumblebee but Chip and Sparkplug and Spike and Spike's smiling so big. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's so good that there's – you don't need any dialogue. Just show me that face. Show me that face as they're driving off to the sunset and, and Bumblebee humming along. Oh, everything is okay again. Oh, I needed all in that. All, it's a fantastic episode, and though it does have some serious pacing issues – there's that stretch of scenes where they don't even take the time to use the scene transitions. The duh, 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 duh. It's like, yeah. we don't have time for that. Just just <laughs> switch to the scene. They do like three in a row like that. And then at the end, they seem to have too much time for the laser battle. So other than that, I mean, this two-parter has a ton of awesome in it. It's not perfect. It could stand some little tweaking here and there. But it's pretty dang great. But... Something I did notice, please note that the actions of Dirge and Thrust in this episode, well, Dirge presumably is the one who made the whole movies of the faux <laughs> Autobots unmasking, and Thrust blew up Teletran 1, which freed the Autobots from imminent death. Oh. So these new Seekers are not doing so hot. And speaking of grading performances, let's point out that the Employee of the Month laser beak got swatted out of the air by a fat man with purple hair. <laughs> Sad performances by the Decepticons this episode. <laughs> oh, look, the Lithuanian judge has only given them three, three, <laughs> three points. Well, <laughs> well you know, once they all got back to headquarters, Megatron was like whipping out the report cards. <laughs> laser beak, I saw you get swatted by Burger. He sits down, he crosses his leg, and he pulls out a notepad, and then he licks the end of his pencil. He's like, all right, everybody gather around. And they're all like, oh, no. He grabs Laserbeak's Employee of the Month plaque off the wall and destroys it. Laserbeak just cringes. 
Oh man! And then and Rumble and friends are like, "Yeah, but remember the time when we almost killed? <laughs> almost? I don't care about almost. We almost won today. That's not winning." <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, huh? Thruster Ramjet don't wait for orders, do they? You know, this is this is following on that sort of implicit theme that. The Decepticons were a military operation where Skywarp asks permission. Rumble falls into line when Megatron's around. Mm -hmm. uh, but Starscream, who expresses his individuality, always throws a wrench in things. And that's what's happened here, right? Like, the, these three jets have, have said, like, in Auto Berserk, Dirge defies orders. Yep. It's like, forget it, you know? <laughs> I don't know how, how intentional that was, but it, it matches. I mean, the puzzle pieces meet. Mm -hmm. but I mean, gosh, I could see why you love this one. Cause like it's, you get all, you get all of your cake and get to eat it too. Right. Cause like <laughs> cause you get to watch the Decepticons hang out. You get to hear rumble say, get down sound wave. <laughs> so you get like the downtime you get to, to get the personalities of the Autobot or the Decepticons exp expressed a little bit in like thrusters and Ramjet and the, the tapes. You get to watch them wreak havoc all over the place. You get to look like what it would look like if they won. Mm -hmm. You get Megatron being like probably his most nasty and devious yet. Like what when he when he pulls that turn on Burger, like that's that's one of the roughest things he's ever done. Yeah. You know? And like and like it's it's so interesting that it's a psychological punishment too, right? It's like, oh, I'm gonna give you everything you deserve, and like you expect it to be like, oh, he's gonna be like tortured or something. But no, he's just gotta work all the time and everybody in the world hates him and they <laughs> and and Soundwave stops spike and chip from talking you don't see him saying get back to work to the guards when they're giving burger a hard time and i bet that was an order right it's like okay nobody talks unless they're <laughs> they're pitching nastiness at that guy and then you can talk as much as you want you know so yeah like this is like decepticon dream episode and then we find out that it could have had twice as much icing, but they had to cut those extra scenes. <laughs> those those would have been good to have in the episode, yeah. I, I wonder if they didn't just get cut for time, though, because it feels like they would lighten the mood a little bit more than what this one felt like. Like, as a child and as an mm. adult, this one feels very grim to me. Yeah. You know? Because you get the part where Spike begs for the lives of Sparkplug and Chip. That's hard. You get the part where Chip pleads with Thrust, please don't kill Teletrans, all we have left, right? You go 15-odd minutes into this episode not really knowing what happened to the Autobots, you know? If you would have had Starscream on a talk show, well, that, I think that would have worked because the way it ended with Starscream being like, oh, wait for it. <laughs> but, like, Thrusters and Ramjet, as much as I, I'm with you, I would love to watch them at the opening of a mall and really play with the idea of, like, maybe Thrust digs this. Maybe Thrust is like, hey, maybe, like, you know, like, like w raising the question of, like, maybe some of these characters aren't really in it for the tyranny. They're in it for the adulation and the, the celebrity. And could mm -hmm. you tempt them away from a life of crime if you just said, like, look, we'll put you on TV all the time. What? Really? Okay. You know, <laughs> welcome to the Thrust show. And this is the Thrust show. <laughs> Will it break with Thrust? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like it broke. <laughs> It's like, oh, look, it's all legal on the up and up, and he's not hurting anybody. We just give him things to break. Here's a refrigerator. Will it break thrust? It breaks. All right, <laughs> I did it again, everybody. Come back next week. You know? And maybe they were foreshadowing this by not giving thrust the red eyes. 
It's like ah. he isn't really married to the Decepticon cause. He has other things in mind. <laughs> Why didn't I know you when I was ten? Because like this is the this is the, the conversation <laughs> I wanted to have on the playground so bad, so bad, and nobody <laughs> wanted to engage in this with me because like that is like. 11-year-old Jersey's like, eyes would light up at that thought. Like, yeah, they did it on purpose. <laughs> it's all designed for me. <laughs> <laughs> How do I feel about this one? I think, I think it's, this is an emotionally challenging one for me, not in the way some of these other ones have been, like the Master Builders. This has been one where it's really leaning into treating it like a serious science fiction show. Mm-hmm. This one does not feel like City of Steel or like the Autobot Run. Or early season two, where it felt a little bit, if if they weren't intentionally making it a silly plot, they were skirting around difficult ideas to make it still palatable for children. Like Autobot Spike, where it's like, if there's only some way we could put his mind in someplace <laughs> else, while he worked on his body, like no, 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 just say it. He's gonna die, and Sparkplug out of desperation puts his mind in the Autobot to keep him alive hoping after hope that they could still fix his son's body. But it's his way of covering his bets. Yeah, I don't think a five-year-old would get that. Okay, well, we'll just have that line by Dan Gilvison, you know. So this one feels like it leans right into the difficult concepts. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that Berger, Berger's redemption is not clear, you know. Right. He has the capability of it when cornered, but if he's offered a way out, he'll take the easy way out, right? Mm-hmm. So... And is is he a wicked villain? No, he's a he's a flawed little boy who's just hungry for power. Mm-hmm. And and the, the dangerous thing about those those kinds of characters are it's easy for you to fall in with the real monsters like Megatron. And you can think that you you guys are on an even footing, but the villains like Megatron always break their tools at the end. Once they don't need you, you're smashed on the rocks and whatever. So this had all that for me too. So, whew, Mr. Glute, deep bow. Take take <laughs> ten bows. You deserve it. This was this one. When people say, "Oh, does it hold up?" and I always push back on that thought. I say, "Hold up to what?" In this case, I'll say, "Does it hold up to your nostalgia?" Yes. This one, if you must use that term, I would say Megatron's Master Plan Part One and Two hold up. There's your gold star. Yeah. Uh, agreed. So, whew. Shake it out. Man, what are we going to do next? Well, next episode after this is Desertion of the Dinobots Part 1. So another two-parter coming right oh, up. Oh, man. I'm still feeling gassy from this one. <laughs> I need a palate cleanser. We need reinforcements, and we need them now. Ask, and you shall receive. Hi, Jersey. All in the next exciting episode of Four Million Years Later. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you for this discussion, Hoover. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for downloading and listening. If you want to avoid being a dog lunch. (laughs) You see, I used positive reinforcement in past episodes. I'm using negative reinforcement. Don't be a dog lunch. Go to wherever you listen to this show and give us a five-star review. And if you really want to avoid Dog Lunch Town, if you really don't want me to come over and dog lunch you with, with my dog lunch, whatever that means, starting to sound like a McDonald's commercial. <laughs> hot, hot. <laughs> 
write a review. Tell us, you know, what you like about the show. Just name three things. This, this is something I like that Jersey said. This is something I like that Hooper said. This is a Decepticon I like. This is an Autobot I like. Boom, you're done. You wrote it. And it didn't only took a few minutes of your time. Helps more people find the show. So, again, from here on, this is what we're going to say. Don't be a dog lunch. Give <laughs> us a review. If you want to be more verbose, tell us what you do with three cities. <laughs> that would be good, too. What would you do with three cities? Smash that subscribe button and comment in the in the feed. <laughs> Tell us what Decepticon you'd want to dance with. Tell us what opening of a facility or festival you would want to see Thrusters and Ramjet at. <laughs> uh, all right. And then, you know, we, we uh, record the show weekly and then post it at 4millionyearslater.com and in podcatchers everywhere. And we'll be back next week with another episode until then. I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com and Jersey Drozd on Instagram. And I've been Hoover, ramming my head into things. Okay, bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 Million Years Later, and you can email us at 4millionyearslater at gmail.com. Visit 4millionyearslater.com, and if you haven't yet, Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You know how it works. <laughs>